0: Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed boost pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, you guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast.
1: Well, hello there. I am your host. Chris Sinclair, joined by my co-host, Mr. Drew Garrison, and this, this is the Good Bottle Podcast. How are we all doing today? Drew, feeling alive? You feeling perky? You uh, Are you back on West Coast time now, or are you still feeling like a little, uh, little shook from being on the East Coast?
2: Okay, so I am back. Um, not only did I travel across the country, but I traveled across the country on a weekend where there was daylight savings time. Which I don't know what that's doing my in, to my internal clock, but it's nothing nice. So I'll say that. Um, yeah, I just got back from Miami Rum Congress, and so you know, as our longtime listeners will know, this is a this was the big event that I did before the first shutdown, and then this was an event that both Chris and I attended in San Francisco and did kind of like a breakdown of the event and we're not going to do a full episode like we did last time regarding just rum stuff because uh, only I went this time, but I will give you the highlights. There was uh, lots of really amazing rums there. Also that same weekend, whiskey X was going around. So I got to run into a bunch of my whiskey friends there in Miami as well. So that was really, really cool. Um, there was a like mini tropical storm during the middle of rum Congress, which was outside. So that destroyed the rum Congress and everybody had to move inside with whatever bottles they had left, <laughs> you know, that didn't break when it was, uh, I mean, it was terrifying. Uh, some of you guys have seen the videos I've been made fun of multiple times by multiple people about a little gust of wind scaring them. And um, but for those people that were there, I have been validated, and they also tell me even the ones that are used to tropical storms that it was pretty crazy and out of nowhere. Um, and then outside of that, got to try lots of amazing rum. Some of the highlights was uh, the plantation Australian rum from the Binley Distillery, super super delicious, like go I've been figure. Really, plantation. I've been really
1: wanting to try that one too. That's a it's a very exciting one.
2: Yeah. And it's, and it's delicious. Uh, I've had some Binley before and um, reached out to their distillery manager, Steve, and told him that it was great. I got to have a conversation with Alexander Gabriel, who is the owner of Plantation. And I actually had multiple conversations with him over the next few days. And this is somebody who I've wanted to meet for years and hold an extremely high regard. And he was amazing. Totally lived to the billing. Another person who was amazing was Ben Jones, who uh, runs the guys that run Spear Bomb. Uh, We had lots of drinks together and became good buddies. So I'm pretty happy about that relationship now as well. Yeah, really, really cool dude. Um, Got to spend the whole weekend with Miriam Pacheco, who owns Chiranda Urapin. And she, of course, is like the greatest human being in the world. So that was really fun. And then... Two, rum, two more rum highlights. One, Grander rum from Panama. Wow. I don't, I was blown away. I've been wanting to try this rum for a really long time. I've, for whatever reason, have been really into Central American rums, Spanish style, column them still rums recently. And the stuff that Dan from Grander has is crazy. Like really, really enjoyed it. He did an Isla cask that was uh Ardbeg cask. And really, really beautiful having those those two flavor profiles come together. And then I had another one uh, met this female distiller out of uh, Ghana. And she is doing uh, and I don't know if I actually should be saying this, but well, we're too far now. 100 um, <laughs> percent cane distillate that she then ate, Well, I'm not going to say any name, so I guess this is this is not going to do it. So uh, that she then aged in um, cashew, apple, brandy cask. So if you're familiar, if you're familiar with uh cashew apples, um look up how cashews are grown. And once you're once you put the pieces of your brain back together, then you'll uh understand that they take those apples and they mash them and distill them. In uh India, it's called Feni. And they were blown away by the fact that I knew what that was. And thank you, JBS, for having the weirdest fucking pro you know, portfolio in the world. Um so so it was really cool it was a great trip uh, I love I love Miami um it's just so much fun and uh, the uber situation is a little sketch I think they need to start background checking some of those people and their cars because there was a couple cars I got into I was like this is not what I am used to um but outside of that I love Miami it's such a cool town there's so many like you know so many friends that I hadn't seen in two years like being able all coming back to that event it was it was awesome, and um, you know I look forward to the next one. I'm gonna try to see if I can work my way into the Chicago show because I think that'd be really cool, and you know hit three out of the four shows for for the Rum Fest over the year. But so that's that. I want to move on to our guest because we're actually recording a little bit later because we've already confused the hell out of each other with some of the the discussion topics tonight. Um, but this is somebody who <clears throat> was a big supporter of. JVS imports when he was in a position to buy lots of JV, JVS uh, brands, and in particular, Mexican spirits, wines, and pretty much anything that we had. And so our relationship actually started via um, like Facebook or Instagram and And unfortunately, actually, we still haven't met in person, so we need to remedy that eventually. But I've watched this guy move into different roles and different positions. And then, you know, he's got some really exciting stuff to share tonight, which I am so stoked for because I kind of feel like I've watched this transformation and this evolution into this project that seemed inevitable when you really think about it. But it's still amazing to see. So our guest tonight is the founder of the Vino Del Cero Consulting. Previous Mexican Wine and Spirits Curator for Miriam of Beverly Hills. He's a writer for Mescalistas. You should go check out his articles. They are incredible. Um, He's a curator of great spirits. He is an ex-bartender. Our guest tonight is Bryant Orozco. Bryant, thank you for being here, (laughs) brother. This has been way too long. We've been trying to book this forever. (laughs) But you travel so much and you go to so many cool places that it's been hard. But here you are. What are you sipping on? Tell us more about yourself.
0: All right. Well, I mean, that's wow, a whole bunch of stuff to say at once, but thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I'm glad we finally are able to get this podcast together. I right know we've been trying to do this for God, who knows how long, but you know, I feel like it's the perfect time to do it. I mean, I mm-hmm. actually have things to talk about now. Oh, better things to talk about. Um, sipping on right now. All right. So, I know people can't see me here, but I got my little copita here. I actually did pick up some mezcal at a, I was also at a festival recently in Mexico City, a very large, um, how can you say, it? like a mezcal, what do you call them like exhibitions or get togethers, in Spanish it's an encuentro. But anyways, I'm having this lechuguilla from Sonora, from Alamo, Sonora, from a producer named Javier Vega. It's a lechuguilla, the agave is agave bovicornuta, really interesting, people think it's the other northern distillates northern mexican distillates or sonoran distillate but in fact it's actually the original but that's a whole another story on its <laughs> own. but yeah that's what i'm sipping on right now
2: nice and so um you know one do you know so you, so you have done a lot of traveling like you're in and out of mexico like we we kind of caught you at the perfect time where you have a few weeks down before traveling kicks up again but um you spend a lot of time in Sonora, and have been. I mean, to me, you're kind of like the unofficial Sonora brand ambassador for the United States, just based <laughs> off your travels and your writings. Um, and then your very hard and steadfast opinions on Bacanora, which uh, Bacanora is a mezcal or is, is mezcal-like, but it is an agave distillato. Um, it has its own designation of origin that was established in two thousand one. Or two thousand? Is that right? Two thousand one, two thousand three. It's like one of those I years.
0: Confused. It's like early 2000s. I want like two thousand two, two thousand four around that time? But yeah, I don't. So remember, somewhere but around that time, yes. <laughs> yeah, so
2: some somewhere in that range. You know, it's it's a um. You know, it was a it was a group of people who were left out of the original mezcal designation of origin, so they decided to start their own. But like, um, you know, and Sonora also shares a border with the U.S. Correct? Correct. Okay, so what about Sonora has really drawn you there and continues to draw you back and then has made you, you want to like, I need to talk about this. I need I need more people to know about Bacchanor. I need more people to know about Sonora. I need more people to know about Guia. All these different things that happen when you're talking Sonora.
0: Well, when it comes to Sonora, I mean, what really draws me there is the fact that that's my, that's my heritage. I'm a Sonoran descendant. My mom was born and raised in Sonora and we go back. I mean, I don't know how many generations. I know there's stories of having great grandparents often the sierras and the mountains and the pueblos so i mean that's what kept me going back i've gone to sonora almost every summer every other summer since the day i was born so yeah i've gone to go visit my grandparents i have lots of family out there and that's why i'm out there quite often and it's also not too far i mean if i want to drive it's a 12 hour 13 hour drive from la it's going through arizona it shares a border with arizona so i just go up la The 10 freeway Hit Phoenix, go down south, and a couple hours later, I'm in El with my family. But, uh, yeah, that's what draws me to it. And, it, you know, fate just kind of had it for me. But it turns out, you know, as I started getting into bartending and getting into distillates, I started listening more to my family about their stories regarding Bacanora, Lechuguillas, and it just kind of fell hand in hand. It was just the perfect marriage of my interests, my career, and my heritage and my background.
2: Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's awesome. And, and, you know, you've been so generous with, uh, with those stories and, and things like that. It's been really cool to see like the, like kind of the picture that you've been able to paint for this really wonderful state and this really wonderful, you know, distillate that, um, doesn't have a tremendous amount of representation in the U S despite the fact that it has, you know, almost 20 years of this designation. um, what sets Bacanora apart for you, and then you know do you think we're gonna see more coming to the states, or what are your thoughts on on just like the industry of Bacanora?
0: You know, I do foresee a large boom in Bacanora in the upcoming years. Um, the previous trips I've been on, I've heard rumors about people now having fields of angustifolia growing outside the small pueblos outside the small towns. Uh, I've seen a growth of brands that are now accessible here in the United States. And just because they're accessible doesn't necessarily mean they're good. I just had a really awful one recently. Um, But uh, yeah, I I do think the category is going to grow. I think anything regarding agave spirits is growing. I mean, anything Mexican spirits is going hand in hand with that modern Mexican trends here in the States. So it's definitely here to stay. It's going to blow up. I just don't know if it's going to blow up in a healthy way.
2: Yeah, I think that's always the tough part when it comes to um, agave spirits and, um, you know, in particular, the ones that are a little bit more limited in scope, you know, with like Mezcal, you have the benefit of 10 different states that Mezcal can come from. And so some of the prevailing theories, are like, well, you know, maybe we'll have a better shot at keeping this sustainable if there's multiple places to pull from. But yet we still are pulling 90% of it from Oaxaca. And then it's even within Oaxaca, it's like, you know. Uh, you know, maybe 70% just within 15 miles of Oaxaca City, right? So there's just a, there's a, there's still this concentration. Um, Now I'm sipping on actually a bacanora that you sent me uh, a few weeks oh, ago. Okay. So um, you were trying to fund some of your ride and you're like, hey, I'm going to sell some stuff. So I bought uh, a bunch of horns off of you. And yes, people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hear this correctly. We don't, we, we're not hundred percent sure where the horns are from um but we have some guesses uh and i have some plans for them and when i do finish them i have some surprises for you guys but uh so i'm working on that but you also sent me some bacanora, and it's freaking delicious uh this is i i really really enjoy Bacchanora, and again there's just not a whole lot of choices that at least i've come across yet that i that i thoroughly enjoy um so speaking of that chris what are you drinking what are you sipping on right now as we're as we're getting heavy into the Bacchanora talk
1: well, yeah, I I went uh, another route tonight, and I'm going with an American single malt. Um, I'm going with uh, the Rogue Distillery uh, Morimoto uh, pick for a single malt. Uh, this was oh, done. This was done cool. uh, in concert with <laughs> the uh, the Iron Chef himself uh, for his uh, for all of his restaurants. Uh, and Which he has one in Napa, right? Uh, he, he has, has one in Napa. And I was lucky enough to get my hands on uh, some of this. And we have some coming into the shop, too. Very, very exciting. Um, this is a, a, a really a lovely single malt, um, especially as an American representation of single malt. Um, it's now.
2: It's got- now, how does it? So yeah, I'm pretty familiar with Rogue. They're out of Portland. I've been to their distillery. Historically speaking, I am not a fan of what they do. Um, yeah you know and i I respect them i'm like i'm like hey guys it's your money do what you want with it right (laughs) but boy (laughs) when it comes to asking me to drink their stuff i have lots of other things i'd rather do however this is also one of those situations where it's like they continue to put out new stuff they're continuing to try different things how does this one compare to maybe some of the other Distillates, or what your impressions were of Rogue before you had the Morimoto, because I feel like if they would have approached me, I was like, okay, that's I definitely am interested in something like that. Like if someone was willing to do a single cask, okay, it might stand out, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm like, oh, the track record, not, not as you know, interesting.
1: Yeah, what's interesting about this is that it's not a, it's not a single cask, right? Like this is this is meant to be uh, plentiful and readily available for his restaurants Mm. Uh, and for all of his restaurants, not a restaurant. It's not, it's not, he's not just buying a barrel. Mm. He is, he is, they have invested in making an entire label It is quite beautiful. Uh, It's very sexy. Uh, You know, my,
0: how many restaurants are there?
2: That's a great question. I don't know. I'll produce, I'll produce it real quick. Chris, you keep talking. I'll look it up. Gotcha.
0: Um,
2: My
1: initial, uh, interaction with rogue and rogue spirits, uh, was, uh, probably really similar to yours, Drew. I, 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 it was lackluster. It was cool in theory. Um, uh, but I wasn't a fan. Um, and it wasn't until, um, uh, master distiller came back into, came into town and I, uh, met him, hung out with him and we, we sat down and, and drank through his, his whiskeys, um, and they did you they, get wineried? Is that like, what no, me? you know? No, no, got no, winery, I didn't. I, didn't I, I was able to have though a, a more substantial interaction, um, with not just the brand, but the process. And you it's got much so, better. you got
2: so, you it's, got so winery. This, this whiskey, so
1: got <laughs> this whiskey is a lot better than it, than it used to be. Um, so back in the day, it was really young. It was really fruity, uh, 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 overtly multi, um, it just underdeveloped a lot, uh, uh, like really immature characteristics. And I think maybe they were just releasing shit too early to start making that money. Right. It's the time old time old story of a distillery getting open, needing to make money. So they got to start releasing product, but then they shoot themselves in the foot because they're releasing subpar product. Yeah. So uh, the it, entire just for- lineup that I had of, of rogue at this point in time, um, did not not a single one of those marks came off in that way. They were they were a lot more well-rounded, a lot more mature. Um like they they actually learned how to produce dope whiskey.
2: Okay, so two things. One, there are 17 Morimotos around the world. So so there there's that. Two, just for our listeners who you know might have come on after learning what winery means, so winery means that you go to the winery, you fall in love because like you're getting wooed by the story. You're in this beautiful place. You take the wine home, and it sucks because you're not in the middle of a beautiful vineyard. <laughs> you're now in your kitchen, and you're like, "What happened to this wine? You got winery." So, I, I mean, I think that's I think that's encouraging here, and obviously it makes sense. We've talked about that with lots of different distilleries, where you know that first couple things come out, you're just kind of like, "What is happening?" You know, and it does, it turns you off. Through, it's turned me off from the brand. You know, like we have a friend that works for them. And I'm kind of like, I'm like, I have no interest in trying any of your stuff, you know? Well, like, and it's and that like, was, go get, that like, was go get your too. bills paid. I mean, I, you know, I legitimately, but, I was like, don't bring that shit around here.
1: And then he did. And I was like, mm, good for you for bringing it around here. <laughs> I
2: was like, well, he's never, he's cool. never been a good listener. That's for sure. Yeah, that's, that's impact. Um, <laughs> <effect>,
1: but Jay, <laughs> you were right this this time, buddy. Yeah, uh, you're this, right is, this is, I will say, and and this Specifically, this pick is a or this mark in theirs is very delicious. And and, uh, I feel particularly lucky um, that we at Good Bottle are going to be able to at least carry a little bit of it. Uh, The deal that they have with Morimoto is that they produce enough that Morimoto gets what he wants as much as he wants of it. Then if there's any leftover, then they sell the very limited amount to anyone else.
2: It's kind yeah. of like there was a big pandemic where it shut down a bunch of restaurants and they're like, we need to sell some of this whiskey. Probably. <laughs> That's I'm what sure that sounds hot, like. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> uh, so okay, so Brian, I wanna I wanna shift the focus back to you. Um one of the things that you actually just did is you announced your new company, which is the um the Vino Dosero Consulting, correct? correct. Okay. I mean, and we're talking
0: like Last week?
2: Maybe the week before?
0: I think it was about two weeks ago. I was down in Guadalajara, and I just pulled a trigger. I was like, you know what? I'm down here. I'm not really doing much right now. I'm in between events. I'm just going to start an LLC. I'm just going to just pull the trigger on it, and let's just go. Let's just just see where the hell it goes from there. So, uh, yeah, I uh, had a a restaurant and a brand kind of reach out to me, did some consulting for them. And I figured, well, what the hell? If I'm going to be doing consulting, I might as well make it official. So I figured I'd use the name Vino del Cerro. Um, the Vino del Cerro stands for well. It kind of has a double meaning in Spanish. So Vino del Cerro means came from the mountain. Vino being like I came like in past tense, but Vino is also wine, which is all used mm. interchangeably with mezcal or Lecuyera Canora in the north. So Vino del Cerro means like um, you know mezcal or distillate from the mountain. So it kind of has this cool little double meaning. In yeah, so, yeah. I figured I would just pull the trigger on that man and just kind of see where it takes me this year
2: so i so i think that's really that's really interesting and and for the reason and for this reason is in our industry you know there's always this progression that people kind of go on right you know you you know you bartend um then you know maybe you become a brand ambassador and then you work for you work for a distributor maybe a supplier and then you become a real estate agent like it's kind of how it goes (laughs) you know time and time again, but there's a lot of people who do like bar consulting and, you know, whether that's cocktail menu or something like that. And they never take that next step to really create that, that LLC for it. You know, they just kind of continue to do it. Maybe they charge a couple grand or, or whatever it is, but how do you envision your consulting, you know, firm going? And then if, you know, if you could like, you know, what was really the kind of, you know, to really take that next step outside of just being born in Guadalajara, you know?
0: So, I mean, this is something like I said, has been in the works. I did have, like I said, I'm, we haven't really signed the contract yet, but I can really talk, I can talk a little bit about the project, but there's the restaurant here in LA that reached out to me uh, about a month ago, a month and a half ago, asking me if I did consulting. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I do. I've essentially, I mean, I've helped friends out in the past before, I've connected producers with distributors or importers or whatnot. And I, you know, it's one of those things where part of my, 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 my thing, my personal philosophy is to, if you have the connections and the two people are looking for that connection, why don't you help mend that connection without looking for anything in return? Just kind of help people out, man. Cause in the end, who knows, it might come back to you. And if it doesn't, then so, oh, well, you, you, you accomplish a good deed. So. What I started doing with thinking about this is that my these past couple of years, I've had people reach out to me and tell me, hey, well, what's up, man? When are you going to start importing Bacanora? When are you going to start a brand? When are you going to start your restaurant, your bar? And I'm just like, I don't know, man. Like, have you ever met a restaurant owner? <laughs> yeah, they're fucking stressed. <laughs> they're miserable most of the time. And so, most I don't, of I don't all, know what you're talking but, uh, about. and the same thing with brands too i mean especially in the world of agave and mexican spirits i mean i mean well mainly agave and desolarian spirits is that there's just so many brands and so much trash out there there's so many producers but brands in general just kind of not take into consideration what's going on with the land the exploitation of water of labor of all these products who am i to add another brand to this burning tire fire you know it's like what can I do to help out this situation? I can tell people, hey, man, pay me, contract me, and I can kind of help you out, guide you the right way, let you know, hey, this is what's fucked up here, Brad. Maybe we can make it better. Maybe we can make it less problematic. Same to what restaurants. There's so many restaurants out there. Why am I going to add another Mexican restaurant? I'm based out of L.A. Why am I going to add another Mexican restaurant here in L.A.? I might as well, you know, do my part and help out and clean up some of the mess over here. I mean, I'm not going to solve the world's <laughs> problems. I'm not going to solve the restaurant problem, the mezcal problem, but I can do my little part to at least raise some awareness with some of these people who have the buying power behind them and the money behind them. So, I mean, that's kind of the goal of work. That's what our, I'm trying to take. Vino know, etc. I mean, with the growing trend of modern Mexican restaurants, I feel like I can help make a difference that way.
2: And so, you know, when one of the things that you briefly mentioned earlier is that you know you kind of. I mean, you did, you didn't kind of like you called out a brand via your social media and was like, (laughs) like this stuff is trash," which I thought was hilarious, but I'm also one of those people who sometimes voices their opinion when they shouldn't. Um, Yeah. You know, do you think that like there's any pitfalls to being that brutally honest or do you think it's gonna be part of your brand, especially like with your consulting moving forward and, and things like that? I mean... You know, like sometimes it, it can get a little bit of a hairy situation, right? When you end up being so overtly, uh, you know, critical of, of different brands and things like that, because, you know, I share a similar opinion on that brand. Um, but it's like, it's like, I, I feel like I've, as I've gotten older, it's like, okay, I'm trying to chill out a little bit. Like, it's just (laughs) kind of like, Hey, it's just not for me, but you know, I, it's probably a lot more personal for you because you do like, I, I, I have not been to Sonora yet. When I go for the first time, I'm, I'm going with you. But, um, yeah. but it's, it's one of those things like, is there a balance that you think that you're going to apply or does, do you feel like, you know, Hey, I'm starting my own consulting company. This is what you get. You know, this is how I'm going to, this is how I'm going to approach it. This is how I'm going to do it, you know, and, and kind of let the bodies fall where they fall.
0: Well, yeah, I definitely try to watch what I say. I mean, I think I kind of lashed out a couple days ago because first of all, I I was already, you know, a couple of drinks in. So I was like, man, fuck this. Man. <laughs> second of all, <laughs> second of all, I think it, it kind of, you know, did strike a chord with me because it was, uh, you know, a Bacanora from Samora. And if people, first timers are drinking Bacanora for the first time and trying that brand and that's their exposure to Bacanora, like that's a terrible example. What is their idea going to be with afterwards? If there's other Bacanora, great Bacanora being offered to them and yeah. they are... You know, they're like, oh no, I had this other crappy one. I I can't even name drop it because I forgot the name of it. But um, it's um, yeah. I mean, I think it's uh definitely uh like walking, you know, on like a field of landmines. Definitely watching where you step because yeah, you also don't want to sever connections. You don't want to just call a brand out and say they suck. Maybe you can be a part of that conversation. Bring them in and talk to them about it. Hey man, like this isn't really what it should taste like. Or why does it taste like this? Or why are you producing things this way? yeah so it's um i I think you're right. it definitely is uh uh I guess uh, you know, as I get older, I'm trying to kind of control myself more, watch my mouth more, try not to be as malady, but you know, a couple of drinks in it. we're hanging out, who knows I might just start talking shit
2: <laughs> oh no i hey, trust me i'm I'm totally there with you, and don't worry uh, I screenshotted it so we can cover it. we can cover it later here. yeah, <laughs> like i I know exactly what the brand is, and we will talk about it offline because you know we don't we don't need to call somebody out right now. Um, but, uh, no, I, I think that's great. I think that, I think that's really awesome because there's, there, there is been this huge influx of, um, of Mexican spirits that have gotten into the market and, you know, yeah, you walk into bars, you're kind of like, like, good Lord, can someone please help these people? Like, you know, I, I don't know who they thought this was a good idea, but like your back bar, if you're Mm -hmm. a, if you're a sole proprietorship should not look like Chevy's you know you need to right. put a little bit more effort in um so i you know and especially with some of some of the ones that like you know they don't have the marketing budget so you know they do need that little extra help so people like you kind of you know boots on the ground it's, it's going to be really huge
0: <laughs> right i think that's a, the final thing i wanted to touch on with Vinil and Settle too is that there's just so many mezcal ideas i've gone to throughout the country and here you know in the States, where it's essentially just a copy and paste model. You see the same brands over and over. It's the same stories. It's kind of like, what's where, where's the novelty of the Mezcaleria now? It's this kind of like, or oh, the modern Mezcaleria. I couldn't even call it traditional. A traditional Mezcaleria, you know what the hell you're drinking. It's just a fucking glass bottle without a label. But here in the States, it's literally the same brands. I can go to five different mescalerias and I'm going to see the same brands for the same portfolios, and who knows, you might have the one exclusive batch here and there, because now that's mm-hmm. the rage. But I feel like with Miscalia, you definitely have to take a creative approach um the job i'm going to be consulting for you know once we get things rolling like i said name won't be dropped yet but i can talk about the concept that our concept now that what i want to help them out with is to put place an emphasis on northern mexican distillates because i haven't seen that done yet i mean uh, people kind of have a broad education when it comes to mezcalia trying stuff from like oh let's do um, a side-by-side with something for the north and the south but i think having something kind of more region-specific would be really interesting because I haven't really seen that done yet with anything with northern Mexican spirits. It could be, it could exist. I don't know if there's a Mezcaleria with the same concept or not, but I mean, that's essentially what I want to shoot for. I want to start shooting for more specific concepts when it comes to Mexican distillates instead of just having the same things over and over
2: again. Yeah. Yeah, that's Chris, rad. did you have any questions for, for Brent before we move on to our stories? Well, I'm curious, what's that sort of... Uh, logistically, look like when you're when you're approaching
1: companies and saying like, "Hey, how do we how do we introduce these new concepts to the market?" You know, and I, I'm far be it from me, but I, I sort of assuming that you're talking about the American market uh, or international right. market at at very least, right? Uh, when you're saying like, "Hey, like we want," is Bacchanor just so? under underrepresented that you can kind of do whatever you want or, or, or are you taking extra care to sort of tell the story of Bacanora and then say why these things are extra special?
0: Well, I think with these, I mean, it's definitely a matter of education and not just that it's opening a dialogue, not just what you're, uh, clientele with your guests but I mean with your employees as well too or with restaurant owners you have to explain and kind of break down why these spirits are important and why they're region specific to this area I mean why is Bacanora what it is and why is Mezcal what it is to you know other regions so it's just a matter of um, know yeah, just breaking it down and explaining it and just kind of I guess how can I put it we, we have this you, you, it's almost like a juxtaposition of like so many Oaxacan Mezcales that are available on the market right now. I mean, we can easily say what, what was the number you use? It was kind of like a loose number, but 90% of the Mezcales in, you know, in the market comes from Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. We can use that and be like, okay, cool. Well, let's compare this Mezcal. I mean, this uh region that seems to be a pillar in the denomination of origin of Mezcal. And let's compare it to Sonora and let's talk about why this region is so special and what gives it its certain characteristics.
2: Totally. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I certainly look forward to that. I mean, that's uh, that's discussions that both Chris and I are having every single day, trying to to educate and, um, you know, it just it's it's a never ending gig. I had a mezcal tasting today, and you know, just again, you had five seasoned industry professionals who didn't know anything about mezcal, <laughs> and you're just kind of like, you're like, man, like I just this is just never. This is never going to stop. This is how it kind of has to go. And even though it might be such a big deal to us, there is, there's still this huge segment that we can educate. And then more importantly, that we can get them outside of some of those confines, right? Where, I mean, I remember the first time I had a Bacchanora and I was just like, I was blown away. I I was like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that this is Angus Defolia, which for people who are familiar with mezcal is going to be like your typical espadine and and flavor profile. However, in Sonora, they call it Pacifica, right? That is the name of the agave. And it has this completely different profile because, uh, you know, for our listeners home, like, you know, this is a very terroir driven, uh, you know, type of distillate. And it's just, it's just so interesting to me that, you know, it is just another layer in that agave distillato, um, you know, onion that you're just kind of like, you're like, man, and then you have Bacanora and then you have this and you have that. And, and I'm curious for, for the Bacanora, and then we'll, we'll move on to our stories after, but for Bacanora, you know, so you're making out of Pacifica and that's pre- predominantly what you see. I know other agave are growing in Sonora. Are there different types that we're just not seeing as much? Does it still qualify as Bacanora? Like what are some of the rules that go into Bacanora?
0: All right. So with Bacanora, the denomination of origin does state that Bacanora has to be made with angustifolia. And this is where it gets a little confusing. I don't know if there are subspecies of the angustifolia, but you do have Pacifica, as you mentioned. There's also Yakiana. I don't know if they're just region-specific names or if they're just names that people are just kind of using interchangeably with the angustifolia. Um, there are other agaves available, um, you mean. Know, that can be found in Sonora. I actually, if you guys refer to my, on my Instagram page, I actually uploaded a picture on the different kinds of um, mezcal uh, agaves that mezcal can be made from, either Lechuguilla, Bacanora. Even there's a sotol that's been made, or a type of sotol. Like you can't really call it sotol because it's actually not much of origin. But there's um, a a distillate called Palmia that's made out of Dasylirion, coming out of Sonora as well too. But yeah, there are numerous other uh, other species coming out of Sonora. But uh yeah, denomination of origin, dust dates, angustifolia. Uh people in the Pueblo will tell you, like, oh no, we've used this agave, we've used that agave. Sometimes we just blend shit together because that's just what our ancestors <laughs> did, and that's just what we do, you know. So like I said, there's there's definitely a lot of a lot of gray area with that too. But um, um actually I did want to throw in like a little, you know, things I've been picking up here and there. Cause I, I am working on a, a piece on Lechuguilla. I just I haven't had access to some of them. Materials I've been trying to get access to. But um I've heard a lot of rumors that actually angustifolia isn't really endemic to northern Mexico, which for me, I found shocking because I was like, I found it really interesting. Like how the hell is angustifolia growing in Oaxaca? You have angustifolia in in Jalisco that Ch- Chacolo is working with. You have angustifolia in Guerrero. You have angustifolia way the fuck up north. Like how did it cross country? I mean, if it's so region specific, I mean, how did it go from southern Mexico to northern Mexico? I have talked to a couple of guys and one Miss little told me, he's like, oh no, that's Esquadilla. They brought it from the South. And I was like, wait, what? Like I said, these are just rumors. I don't know if there's anything confirmed. I'm still doing some research on this, but that's something that, you know, as of a couple of months ago has kind of lingered in the back of my mind as I try to research more about the history of Acanora and the history of Lechuilla.
1: That's really fascinating. So, uh, like yeah. is, that, is the assumption then that, uh, that, it was brought up because it was a like more hearty uh, agave because it was uh, cultivated easier. It, what What's sort of the, the the running line that people are uh, saying?
0: I honestly couldn't tell you, I couldn't give you a reason why I can give you my personal opinions and ideas and theories, but I honestly, these producers just tell me it's like, Oh yeah, well there's not producers, but there's two of them. You don't want to name them. But they told me, oh no, yeah, it, it came from the south. That's not that's not a snore an agave. And I was like, that's really freaking weird. Which kind of makes sense because I so my family that makes bacanora and they make lechuguilla as well too, or I've lived or live around it, have told me, yeah, these agaves don't last. Like I mean, when there's a frost, like these aguacatefolias just die. These these agaves, they don't call them They're There's like these magueyas or bacanora they call them. They die out in the frost. And you would think something that's kind of lives in this area would kind of grow tolerance to this frost, right? So why are they why are they dying? Like in just why why is the fucking play you know why is it being wiped out? Why is it so widespread mm-hmm. in a time of the cold. But uh yeah, like I said there's different things I've I've heard through the grapevine, things I've kind of noticed, patterns, you know, interviewing people.
2: So I think it's I just think it's endlessly <laughs> so. fascinating. Like, you know, you brought up you brought up Chocolo, and I remember the first time that um we had a conversation with Miguel from there and you know, he was talking about how he had thirteen different variations of the angustifolia, and we were kind of like, "What? Like, what are you talking about?" And uh-uh. at the at the <laughs> time, you know, kind of like your, I guess your prevailing theory was you had cultivated espadine and you had wild espadine, and that was it. And then now this guy is telling us that there are you know eleven more versions of it that he's growing on his, on his land. And, you know, it just comes to, to show you just like kind of that promiscuous nature of agave in general. And then, um, you know, and, and I think if, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm just like throwing out theories on, on like, why, like, why is this, you know, why is this being grown here? Why is this being grown there? And it's, you know, again, we have the epicenter for mezcal, you know, widely considered to be Oaxaca and other people look at it, they're like, okay, well, how can I make money off of this as well? So they move it. It means the same thing that we have coming in with California, right? But our our mindset has been tequila tequilianas, right? Like we're gonna plant yeah. those, even though they're not necessarily indigenous. And we're trying to create these things around this plant that's not indigenous to California. And the results have been very mixed, as we discussed on our pod, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So It's, uh, you know, this stuff is endlessly, you know, fascinating. And, And one of the things that I do love about it is because of the work that you do, this narrative stays fluid and this narrative is ever changing because we haven't been having these conversations with these producers in different places and we're finding out something new. It feels like on a, on a daily basis, right? Because these questions have not been asked before and now there's this real, thirst for knowledge and different things. And so I think it's awesome. And and I hope that you continue to go down that rabbit hole and and see what you come out with. So it
0: should be really fun. Yeah, whatever whatever I dig up, I'm willing to share with you guys. Right,
2: Brad. Okay, well, now I think it's time for our opinions on facts that we've heard from reputable sources. Okay, so the first... Uh, story that we're going to cover today is actually this trend that has been growing again. It kind of popped up in 2013, again in 2017, and it's 2022 now, and the trend is coming back. And that is aging your wine underwater. Um, this is a practice that's happening in different parts of the world. Uh, closer to us in us in California, it was um, it's about a six hour drive from us. Chris, do you remember the name of of the place hold on i'm gonna look it up really quick um the, but basically the what the story covers is just you know this collection of different different people in solvang california so if anyone's been to solvang you can go get yourself some underwater uh wine but they're talking well, they're, about they're serving how it
1: they're not they're not they're, ser- they're, they're serving it they're not uh they're not producing it i think that, okay that's
2: very important but aren't they uh, right, but aren't they uh, keeping it in underwater. And so uh, I felt like they were doing that as well. I
1: don't okay. think so. I think they're serving it. Rajat Par is a uh, very, very uh, well respected and lauded um, uh, sommelier. And he does an amazing job uh, down there at uh, coast range, uh, but I don't think he's, I don't think they're, they're doing that themselves. I think they're just serving. Okay. It. Well, let's let,
2: let, me, let me bring it back a little bit. Um, so, so underwater aging is a uh, is a tactic particularly suited for champagnes, which are often submerged in cages to depths of 200 feet, the sweet spot where the pressure outside the bottle mirrors the inside of it. Uh, when they are brought back to service 12 to 18 months later, the difference is marked when tasted alongside conventionally aged champagne. Uh, there is more intensity, more bubbles, which totally makes sense to me, right? But one of the things that is mentioned in the article is the salty profile of the wine balances the sweetness of the crustaceans in particular in referencing to pairing it with different, different food and whatnot. And I don't understand how we're aging wine underwater is going to give it any salinity whatsoever. Cause it's not like this is seeping into the bottle, but that is something that was mentioned in this article. So, you know, when in this first emerged in 2013, it was looked at as kind of like a gimmick and stuff like that, because, you know, again, these bottles come up and they have, you know, like barnacles on them and stuff like that. Like they look like sunken treasure, which admittedly, I want to drink that because that looks yep. badass. Yep. Um, however, you know, the the explanation of like the pressure and stuff like that, that makes sense to me, but the saltiness doesn't make sense to me. So I think this is really cool, but I'm also confused by what exactly is going on. Uh Brian, I'm gonna start with you. You read this article. You're very familiar with gimmicks when it comes to different agave brands, but now you're reading about a gimmick when it comes to sparkling wine. What were some of your thoughts as you read through this?
0: All right. So I read the article. I mean, it was a pretty – pretty whimsical article. I think it's hilarious that people are aging stuff underwater. I feel like, is this going to be a new category? Is this going to be like the new orange wine? Or I, I don't, it, it could be, a, a, you, know, <laughs> you know, it could be like one of those cool like hipstery wine trends now. Um, but I did take a couple of notes on this thing. Um, so going back on the conditions of the ocean, I just wrote the ocean. is perfect. The perfect wine cellar in quotations. There's no oxygen. It's dark. It's generally around 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, some of my things that I wrote down is that I, I didn't try to refer back to like back in the days when I was a biochem major and completely dropped out of that. But I do recall uh, the gas laws, if you guys are familiar with like these, um, the gas laws in, in chemistry or in physics, that um, I guess with the gas, when you have a higher temperature, you have a higher gas volume. So maybe something cooler, you know, at cooler temperatures would kind of condense the gas, or maybe allows for more gas formation inside the bottle. So that's why there was actually a quote in the article that read that. Uh, let's see, um, that there was more intensity in the bubbles, uh, more intensity, and the bubbles were much finer. So I don't know if it's allowed for more, um, you know, gas production inside the secondary fermentation underwater. And then the other thing too is with the gas laws that when there's higher pressure. There's a lower volume. I don't remember what I meant by that, but apparently, <laughs> at the time it kind of makes sense. <laughs> <That> was- <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of how of my works. Sorry, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you kind of base it off like the gas laws, I'll have to research this again and do it. But yeah, I, I just put therefore, does carbonation integrate better with champagne or bubbly underwater? It's my only, the only way I can relate it to, you know, was like batching cocktails when I used to you know, batch cocktails for bars. Is that when we, we would have to force carbonate these giant cocktails in kegs, we would have to do it in a refrigerated area. You would have to force the gas in there and then move into a chilled area because it would integrate the gas better. It would make it more fizzy or bubbly or you know, twenty four hours, thirty six hours. So that was my only frame of reference with this.
2: Yeah, Chris, um, um, Chris, what were what were some of your thoughts? Because like. I, I feel like we view a lot of this stuff the same way. And, you know, I looked I looked it up where so how long solving was from Sacramento. Like I said, it's a six hour and 20 minute drive. And I was like, I was like, I think we have that in us. Like, I think we need to go do this. We're probably going to pay some astronomical amount for this fucking wine. But like, I feel like we have to do it and then apologize to our wives after. OK, so we can write it comments? off, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's whatever. Yeah, that is. we'll do that. Uh, <laughs> just a, Write it off. We just write a, it off just write it off. Write what off? It. Just write it off. Yeah. Uh we we absolutely should. Um I I mean, look, we send whiskey to space, right? Like people still to this day put shit on boats and send it across the equator multiple times uh just because in history we found that it tastes better that way. Uh, I'm not sure that it was simply just because it was on a boat going across the equator, but, you know, fuck it, whatever. You know, we do all these other things. (laughs) Why not sink some shit to the bottom of the ocean and see what it does? Because it's here. It's easier. It requires a lot less gas to do that than to drive shit across the equator multiple times. Uh, Also, interesting enough, does anybody actually drive it across the equator? Do we know of any trucks that are taking... Taking booze across equators. Anyway, that was a that was a tangent. That my brain was on. That's
2: it. also like I didn't know that <laughs> was I didn't know that was another gimmick. So that's brand oh, it's new. De- I mean. It's definitely a thing. Uh, I mean, anyway, I'm not surprised at all. But I'm just saying, it's like it's like no, a, a, a fucking course.
0: Yeah. Wasn't Ed Hamilton doing something like that with some rum? I think he was moving thing on boats south of the equator, like to like warmer, just following warmer climates, warmer temperatures. I don't remember. Some, that some holds rum. Importer producer. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, you know, the one thing I did want to relate – oh, sorry. No, no, no. By all it. means. Oh, yeah. The, the the one thing I did think about too in the realm mezcal, is I, I – I don't remember which brand it was. But there was a rep that came in telling me, oh, we have this glass-aged mezcal, which you know, people like – love glass-aged. So they believe it softens the distillate, makes it more palatable. But there was this mezcal that was served to me once, and they told me, oh, yeah, these glasses were aged for like 10 months, but they were aged in goat shit. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah, there was like a manure an animal window. They had the bottles in there or like the Nihuana's the Nijuanas, uh, Debbie Johns. And apparently the manure caused it to be like warmer, or slightly warmer than ambient temperature and it did something to soften the mascara. I, I thought it was pretty gimmicky, but I um, you know guess gimmicks out. Yeah,
2: you know it's it's funny that it reminds me, so one of our uh, one of our first guests from last season, Mr. John Lilly, uh, reached out to me a couple of weeks ago. And he was like, he was like, hey, can mezcal redistill in the bottle? And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And he's like, I got into an argument with a bartender in a very prominent place that were telling me that because mezcal gets so hot because it's down in Mexico that it can redistill in the bottle and i just was like john you understand how distillation works why are you <laughs> asking me this question and he was like and i mean basically he got to the point he's like he's like i know it just it's so wrong that i thought maybe i didn't understand distillation anymore because you know like when that happens where you're just kind of like you're like oh my you god just need, like you need somebody else just to confirm that you're not you're not losing your mind we well, you, you almost feel like there was a glitch in the simulation and you're kind of like you're like oh no like did i reset something and do i not know how this stuff works but that just reminds me of that like when he reached out to me I was like I was like no man like you're you're fine but but i do think that there is this in, this increase in this misinformation that comes out because it's almost like this big game of telephone especially with reps of a certain quality that maybe really don't give a shit about this industry and it's purely just a paycheck which is fine but you know they get information they kind of interpret it and then regurgitate it in a way that they think makes sense to people um and and i and i can see something like that happening where it's kind of like yes there's goat shit involved it's hotter and it makes it delicious and you're kind of like, well, fuck. I mean, what am I supposed to do here? Although that that does remind me like one of one of my favorite things that we don't get to see anymore was all the different ways that Bryant would deal with shitty reps and the conversations that we'd have with him and then <laughs> share them on his social media after was like amazing. I mean, is there are there ever times when you kind of feel like you were back behind the stick to kind of be like, "Oh, I wish I could just mess with these people a little bit more when they try to approach me with just booty products?"
0: yes and no I, I mean I I used to love just kind of you know once you're we trying to open a conversation but still fucking with them but I also don't miss being cornered and be like oh crap I can't really leave the bar I'm kind of stuck here and I'm kind of like I have to talk to them now you know I, I feel like I'm at a position now where I can be like oh if they don't have an appointment I'm just going to hide in the office as I leave yeah. or something like that but yeah the, <laughs> I would just watch him on the, the he's in like, the meeting still there? Still there? yep
1: that's my favorite
0: yeah uh, we, I recently
1: got called out yeah. from that. Uh, uh, I was pl- waiting on a phone call uh, from uh, someone from Grubhub. Actually, uh, I had agreed to talk to them, and because uh, I had been avoiding their calls for years, literally. And um, and uh, uh, one of one of the folks who works with us uh, got a phone call and said, "Who may I ask who's calling?" They're like, "Ah, oh, actually, he's in a meeting." And I was like, "Oh wait, is that this person?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah." He gives me the nod, and I was like, "No, oh, no, no, no." And he's like, "Oh wait, he just came in." <laughs> like, oh my the- god! I was like, "Hey, congratulations! That's you good. made it through the gauntlet. <laughs> like, you've seen to the other side." Oh, that's so
2: <laughs> that's so funny, man. I mean, there's just you know, there's there's obviously. I mean, I I mean, on one end, I can definitely empathize with those people, right? Because it's just like I've been there. You know, you're trying to get a meeting. I mean, I. I think I'm seasoned enough. I don't make some of the mistakes that they make, but you know, at the same time, it's just a, it's a brutal comment. Okay. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back to, um, to this in particular, somewhat gimmicky, but maybe not. I think it's really
1: fascinating because there's like Brian was saying, there's, there's like physical changes that happen here. You're in, you're in depth. There's pressure, uh, this story, you know, Something that I occurred to me, and I was happy that they brought it up. That they were saying, you know, the ideal place is right where the the atmospheric pressure matches that of the inside of the bottle, because that was something that I was thinking as well. I was like, well, if you go too deep, it's just going to push the cork in, and then you're going to start getting actually getting seawater pushed into it.
2: But well, maybe that's where the it, salinity comes from.
1: Well, <laughs> just, well, here's the other thing, right? Is like it's <laughs> not, it's not. It's not necessarily a vacuum either, right? You're, like, you're not operating in this, in this area that is, um, that is sealed from atmosphere. It is in a different atmosphere. And in that atmosphere, it does contain oxygen. It does contain CO2. It does contain a lot of hydrogen, which is really fascinating to think about how hydrogen as a gas will interact with the outside of this bottle, right? And then the other part of it is like how much how much of that uh, of that salinity is coming maybe from the fact that like when you are peeling peeling the uh, the the wax off or the foil off that you still have some of that maybe left over right like that's something that you have to be careful of at least back back in the day when foil was still made with lead right like that's why we cut underneath the lip and not up to the lip is because we didn't want that wine to touch mm. the touch the foil because it would change the flavor of it. So all of this is just, it's really fascinating. And I, honestly, I just want to know more than anything because it's, you know, while it may be gimmicky, I think there's a lot of really interesting things. We, you know, the history of booze is written by the sea, but on top of it, not underneath it. And so this is just a really <laughs> fascinating aspect to this that I think I think requires a lot more of a, Forgive the pun, a fucking deep dive.
2: Oh, that is beautiful. Good for you. I did have you. a little
0: comment, a final comment on the, on the, so, so, <laughs> sorry, um, on, a little comment on the salinity, or the possible salinity of the bottles. Um, So I was reading, and I think it's going back to like the whole conversation I was like, wait, does the bottle get redistilled in the bottle? Like, is there something so stupid that maybe it makes sense? But um, I was I, I had to research myself. Is glass porous? Like, I don't think glass is porous. Or maybe the pores are so small that maybe there is some sort of, like, interaction with the ocean. But so when I looked up if glass is porous, and once again, this is based off of a question on Quora.com. So I don't know how legitimate this is. But apparently yeah. glass can become porous through acidic and or alkaline extraction of the non-silica components of the glass. So I don't know if over time does it kind of eat away at the glass? Do things... do do they seep in or am I just overthinking and stuff? I mean, it makes it rough, it doesn't necessarily mean that it makes it porous.
2: Okay, so you cut in a little bit in and out. So, you know, we've had a little bit of static as you've been talking. Can you say that again, but slow it down? Maybe we'll catch oh, it this time and maybe offer you a, a an answer. So what was what what did they what was the answer that was given?
0: Okay. So if blast oh. is porous, it says We're losing him. In, okay. I read this. I, I'm quoting oh guys. Losing him? All right. Oh no. Hello? No, you're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. Okay. Okay. So glass can become porous through acidic and/or alkaline extraction of the non-silica components of glass. I don't know if bottles underwater over an extended period of time can kind of become porous, or maybe I'm just overthinking it, or maybe I I don't know. It was just I was trying to find solutions for the salinity issue.
1: I imagine that. It's possible, but it would require a, a, a far greater amount of time than 12 to 18 months, which typically these bottles are aged for underwater. You know, one of the, one of the things that, I, in my mind, when I was first reading this story, I had to go back and see if they specified in detail how they were being aged underwater. Because in my mind, at first, I was like, they're not just exposing this shit to water but they're clearly just exposing this shit to water uh, and they don't, they don't say it, but it's, it's definitely implied. And then they show you photos of the bottles, which we'll, we'll add, uh we'll, we'll post to our Instagram. So you all can see these bottles. They're really, I'm going to write that down cool. so don't forget to do it. They're really, really cool. Um, <laughs> You know, but in my mind, when I was originally reading this, I was like, man, they, they must be like dropping a cage, right? Like a sealed cage. So they're just that's like what it is. I mean, water. which I,
2: which I also think is funny because you're like, You know, a a part of me immediately goes to like, do they think someone's going to go down there and like steal the wine? You know, are people they got to
1: make sure shit doesn't like wash away.
2: (laughs) Well, I know, but it just is funny, like the thought process of that. So, well, in my mind, I was thinking
1: of like hermetically sealed, you know, like vacuum under the water. Right. Like that's where I was. My head was at was like they were removing the oxygen so it would sink uh but not get wet inside but here they like they clearly want this shit to get wet.
0: Right. Do you think sharks drink champagne? I feel like it's more of a dolphin thing. It's definitely more of a dolphin thing. <laughs> it's definitely thing. a dolphin thing. <laughs> <That>
2: was, so, <laughs> so the person the person that was quoted as saying that is his name is um uh, Sokol Nedreco. Uh, he is an Italian sommelier. Um I just found him on LinkedIn and I sent him a message. I'm hopefully I'll get some, I'll get some feedback from him. Cause like, I have to know what he means by when he says there's this nice salinity in it. it's like, how is there salinity in this bottle? Like, I mean, unless we're just being, unless we're just being jerks, which is totally possible. Um, Cause I'm I, thinking of, I've been, I've been drinking a lot of, a lot of, Sparkling, as of recently, none of it aged underwater, but a lot of sparkling champagnes and different different ones from different parts of the world. And I guess you can argue that there is a little bit of salinity when it comes to certain, you know, sparkling wines. Um, and maybe because of the process, that is enhanced to a degree. But I don't think that I ever would have used salinity in how I would describe wine or how I would describe any type of sparkling wine until now, until this moment when somebody told me that it's going to pair well with crustaceans
0: and it's been enhanced by being underwater.
1: This story reminded me of a cognac that I I'd fallen in love with and is no longer produced. And uh, I will be fighting to the end of my days to get it to be reproduced or at least get more of it into my hands and (laughs) into my mouth. Um, It was uh, a cognac that was being aged off the coast of France on an island that at one point in time uh, held a world that holds an old World War II bunker. That's uh, that's, you know, off the coast in the Atlantic. Um, And and uh, the company Camus spelled C-A-M-U-S had had uh, gotten the rights to use use this bunker as as a um, a seller for their for their cognacs, and my understanding of it, and and this, the photos that I saw, and and talking to to the people who work for the company was, uh, that the cognac in these barrels sat there, and these barrels sat there for so long that they developed salt on the outside of the barrel. Now that that salt's clearly well. not getting into the juice itself right but there there was definitely a clear salinity to that now you you can make the argument right that that in a barrel you have that that sort of that breathing aspect to the booze right where where as it evaporates it goes into the wood and then it reconcentrates and goes and then like comes back into the into the you know reformulates into booze inside which isn't
2: distillation john lily you should know that uh, uh <laughs> no i <laughs> mean
1: he was literally he literally just he
2: like the guy was literally telling him in the bottle not even a barrel yeah, in the yeah, bottle yeah. like that's just ridiculous anyway but anyways go on so,
1: so this story sort of reminds me of of that now that's that's a little bit more direct contact with that sort of that saline nature of the ocean or mm-hmm. i guess less contact i i don't know fuck it uh because i guess the bottles being literally in the ocean would be more direct Regardless, the the corks, (laughs) the corks being sealed by foil, foils are the foil is not waterproof, therefore you get a little bit of liquid underneath the foil, could seep into the cork, right? But not in a lot, only enough to like swell that cork up a little bit more. In theory, I suppose, depending on the pressure and if the pressure changes, atmospheric pressure changes underwater. I don't know if that's a thing. You could see how maybe you get like just a touch of seepage into it. And then also by the gas. I don't know. I it's mean, fascinating. Uh, yeah. I want to experience it and I want to learn more.
2: Well, we guess we gotta drive six hours to, to do this, but man. It's fine.
1: I know I know a good podcast we can listen to while we're on our way.
2: Fantastic. <laughs> send it send it to me.
1: Yeah. Uh.
2: So our next article, which I find just absolutely hilarious at this point, because we talked about it a lot before this podcast, because there was this collective confusion amongst all of us. And I was like, okay, well, we'll get to it. We'll have probably a long discussion about it. And then we'll kind of move on. And like, we're already an hour into this podcast. And it's like, oh my God, what's going to happen with this conversation? Or we might've burned ourselves out on it earlier. But what this has to do with... (laughs) is um, the TTB re-examining consignment sales, uh, consignment sale rules that technically no longer apply, but if they should to start apply them and how it should be applied to the rest of the industry and whether or not it's relevant or not, if it's something they they should look into. Now, if you're confused, good, because so am I, so is Brian. Chris seems to have a better handle on what this article was about. So what I want to do is I want to hand it over to Chris here. I want him to talk a little bit about what the TTB is, and I know we've discussed this on the show before, but we got lots of new listeners, so we're going to talk about a little bit what TTB is, um, and then what his interpretation of it was. It, and then me and Brian are going to complain about other things and why the TTB sucks. So, um, so Chris, let me let me pass it off to you, and then you kind of break down this article, or the best to your ability and your interpretation. And we'll go from there.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Chris, your uh, local know-it-all <laughs> who will uh, pretend to know things and make up answers the way I continue to seem smart. You're welcome. The name of this article and uh, something that drew me to it and I thought would be amazing to send to Drew uh, and it was is ttB and consignment sales is there a disconnect between policy development and business reality? This seems directly up drew's uh uh lane and so I sent it off to him uh and it did not disappoint now a little <laughs> bit of uh prerequisite knowledge uh because this is we get we get blamed for, uh, uh, or uh qualified a little bit as being insider baseball, uh, for, for the industry. And that's, that's an apt uh, description of what we do. Uh, I tend to think that we're a little bit more entertaining along the way, regardless. Now this, this article, this story is hands down probably the most insider baseball, uh, story that we have covered almost to date. And so, that being said, it requires a little bit of uh, prerequisite knowledge to really understand why this is fascinating and why we decided to talk about it. TTB is the Tobacco Tax Bureau. Uh, they handle all things booze uh, on a federal level uh, within the United States. That that includes the taxation thereof, the sales thereof, and the labeling thereof, uh, As and then also the marketing thereof. Uh TTB, according to this story, is kicking kicking around the idea of attacking a a problem that they see with a very particular um part of an old act called the Federal Alcohol Administrative Act. This act was uh put into place in nineteen thirty five. For those of history buffs, that is almost right after Prohibition. And this is important. This is a, this is a very old act. It's called the FAAA. Uh, and it really defines a lot of what American alcohol industry is today. Uh, it's a huge part of post-Prohibition booze in the United States and is the um, base model and rules for how, uh, American booze industry has progressed since there are a handful of things that, uh, uh, of laws and, and titles that we handle in the United States, um, that sort of are overarching. One of those would be the tighthouse laws. Um, Tide House laws in America are, uh, our restrictions generally prohibit uh, a manufacturer, a wine grower, manufacturers, agents, rectifiers, California wine growers, uh, distillers, bottlers, importers, wholesalers, and any officer, director or agent. You're right. I'm reading this. Uh, and those <laughs> licensees uh, from giving or lending money for anything of value to the sale of booze. The reason Tide House laws are important is because pre-prohibition, uh, if I, Chris, wanted to open up a bar, I would go to a company like uh, Coors. And I would say, hey, Coors, I want to open a bar. Help me open a bar. And they would say, cool, here's a pool table. Here's some lights. We're going to pay for your signage. We're going to help you with your POS. Uh, you have to. We're going to set up your draft system. And in your draft system, you can only pour Coors Light uh any uh alcohol brand that we also make, you have to only pour that uh and so the point of it was that uh uh the consumer was kind of getting jipped on what they were able to get their hands on, and the access to market for smaller suppliers was thereby also restricted because they couldn't come to play on that same playing level. It was a little bit of an anti monopoly um uh a law that was a regulation that was put into place. On top of that, specifically stated in the FAA are these qualifications for what, what's become known as, uh, or what is specifically known as uh, consignment sales. Now what consignment sales are is exactly what they sound like. I, as a bottle shop owner, want to sell some Mezcal, so I talk to my friends who make the Mezcal, and I say, hey, give me your Mezcal. Sell it to me for $130 a bottle. Uh, I will I will bring that in. I will sell it for $200 a bottle. Uh, when I sell that bottle for $200, I will then there pay you back that $130. That was an issue uh, for multiple reasons, a lot of which I'm not exactly sure of, but enough that it was put into it was put into action. I think mostly it came down to the fact that uh um taxing booze became exceptionally difficult when things were sold on consignment and if we know anything about the federal government, they need their penny. So this specific article was uh was in in um uh, forgive me was in context was in right sorry was referencing to this particular subset this uh this uh buying practice now most states in the United States offer a thirty day credit limit by law uh, it's sort of a an arbitrary day no one's exactly sure why thirty days is the is the time limit that was chosen both federally. And by states, um, but we all operate on that. So again, if I, as a as a purchaser for my bottle shop as I am, uh, go to Drew, who is a distributor, and I say, "Hey, will you sell me these things?" And he says, "Sure, here, sign this contract. You have thirty days to pay this off." Cool, great. Um, Drew, on the other hand, working for a distributor, theoretically has thirty days to pay his suppliers off. Now, where this gets tricky uh, is that while the state in most instances will define my, um, my terms of legal credit to Drew as being 30 days, they have not stepped in and said Drew's legal uh, responsibility to pay off his bills to be within 30 days. Those contracts are negotiated uh, well before and will last anywhere from 30 days, 45 days, 60 days, 90 days. And those contracts are signed and the suppliers agree to them, distributors agree to them. This, the point of the TTB now coming out and saying, hey, we want to inspect this. We want to see how this plays out. Really is talking about the wholesalers or the distributors drew drew's position, the company that he works with talking about the companies who produce the things. So the wine, the spirits, the beer, and how they interact. Now, simply put, it might make sense where you say, okay, well, if Chris has 30 days to pay off drew, it makes sense then for drew to have 30 days to pay off his, his accounts as well, where this gets a little bit tricky. Is that if Chris happens to be late because in paying his bills because of like let's say a global pandemic and uh, you know global market shutdown, uh, then Drew doesn't have the money to pay off his suppliers, right? And then thereby his suppliers also don't have the money to pay off, you know, the, their farmers and their employees. So this gets very tricky when we start talking about this in scale as opposed to just a one and one. That's a lot of explanation for a relatively confusing, but fascinating aspect to our industry. The, and, and sort of a really minute aspect of what the TTB kind of does. They are a bureaucracy. Their job is to prove that they exist and, and support that with uh, doing a lot of work. What's fascinating about this story, and we're going to post it in our show notes is that uh, this blog was written by the, uh, the ex chief of the TZB and in summary, in closing of, of this blog in conclusion, he titles the section in conclusion, ambiguity prevails and uncertainty remains. So if you feel confused, it's okay because so does he, and he was in charge of the whole, whole thing.
0: (laughs)
2: So um, that will be the last time that I ever let Chris pick another article like this. Um, <laughs> because, you know, again, it, the best part about that explanation is that that was potentially the most concise it could have been because this is such a convoluted and completely necessary action. Like the what I chalk it up to is bureaucracy trying to justify itself and people trying to justify their jobs by analyzing something that hasn't been looked at in 90 years and trying to apply it to modern terms. And I think that's something that TTB has really become infamous for over the past couple of years. And the reason I feel that way is because you essentially have all these people working in an industry and working with products that they don't truly understand. Um, as we've pointed out on this show multiple times, the spirits world is excessively diverse. It's full of amazing and unique things that a lot of us on a day-to-day basis are not familiar with. And that's what makes it exciting and fun. And if you're a government employee who doesn't share this kind of passion, then you're probably not going to put in the same level of effort and time into understanding different spirits from different parts of the world, understanding different denominations of origin, understanding different just the nuances that exist within this, within this world. So instead of doing that kind of research, you look through the history books, you kind of find out, Hmm, I wonder what this means that we haven't touched in 90 years. Yeah. Let's mess around with this and let's try to justify our jobs. And that's exactly what is happening here is they're bringing up all this different stuff. They're trying to apply it to different things that I, I just, I just don't get, you know, as a distributor, we have most, for the most part, 30 day terms with all of our customers, Uh, A couple exceptions here and there. And then it varies. It does vary quite a bit with our suppliers. And I just think that there's bigger issues with TTB. The one that I referenced in our conversation earlier was talking about something like a Chironda 100% Agricole has the word rum in quotes on it. The reason that it's on there is because the people at the TTB couldn't understand the labeling process and didn't understand that Chironda was its very own thing. It is a rum technically, but it is from... Mutual con, it comes from a very specific municipality where they call it Chiranda. And that's what they wanted on there. TTB would not allow them to label it what it was. They're like, no, the American consumer won't understand this, which there is some truth to that, but also we don't understand this. So they made them put rum on there. We compromise, put some quotes around rum because it's not really rum. It's Chiranda. And Brian, I want to throw it to you now because I know there's a lot of different things that happen within the agave world. That's very confusing. And then also, um, Often completely botched by the TCB when it comes to labeling and different products from Mexico. So we both agree that we're confused on exactly what this article was, but we're looking at this as an overall problem with TTB and the things that they should be focusing on. So what are what were some of your issues with with TTB or what you see as problematic that could you know, that they should be focusing on?
0: Um, I think one thing a TTB should focus on is actually ties in the issue with Charanda, which also has the denomination of origin, but like spirits like Sotol, which also has a denomination of origin since 2002, I believe. I I don't recall what year the DO was established, but if the TTB did more research and was kind of more well-connected with the industry, they would understand like, oh, wow, these are categories that we should probably, you know, categorize and, do whatever they need to do, tax accordingly or whatnot, so we can ease the sales of them here in the United States. But when you have stuff like Charanda that has rum in quotations, that can kind of be a little misleading to the everyday consumer. Or even having stuff like Texas Sotol, where it's kind of just like, well, how is this Sotol? It's Sotol already has a denomination of origin in three states in Mexico. How, how is Texas going to adopt this term that's traditionally used in Mexico? You know, it's, I think it could be a, a very misleading on that end. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if a TTB needs to hire like some sort of I don't know, spirits ambassador relationship or just to kind of have that connect between what's available on the market and apply that and write laws accordingly around like a like a culture ambassador, right? Something like that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, when we pointed this out on this on this podcast before, you know, more often than not, the United States does not recognize a lot of different designations of origin. Um, The reason that these designations are put forth by the different countries that do it is they are trying to protect a certain brand. Um, Now, there's not a whole lot of incentive for any foreign country to recognize those brands right? Because there's opportunities to make money, there's opportunities to kind of do whatever they want with that. Now, where these things often come into play is during trade negotiations. And that's how more often than not, recognitions do happen. So probably uh, what I consider one of the most infamous ones was the trade negotiations between Brazil and the United States. And one of the caveats of that trade negotiation was they needed to recognize Kassasha as its own designation of origin within the United States. So you can only label something as Cassasha if it fits all these different parameters that were set forth by Brazil, but that doesn't happen very often. And that's why you do see things like Texas so Sotol and, and stuff of that nature. Um, so Chris, I know you had your time to shine, but I want to get you off of this really confusing article that I'm still trying to process right now. And Just give you the forum again, but to talk about something still TTB related, but maybe bothers you about what they're doing and maybe or, you know, maybe what you think they should be focusing on as well.
1: I think I think there there's a lot that's really interesting in the world as it pertains to TTB. I think they have a they have a particularly hard job and a really wide scope in which their their job is like their job description requires them to handle. Uh, and it's not like they draw in a lot of bartenders to be pencil pushers right like we do this because we love this we're passionate about it this is what we do you know they hire government employees who are really good at being efficient or inefficient with filing paperwork and then lawyers and whatnot right uh i i stayed corrected uh i i was doing a little bit of reading um this this uh, blog post uh, was written by Robert uh, Tobiasen. He's the chief counsel of the TTB. He was not in charge. He was not the the head of the TTB. I wanted to correct myself before we before we ended this. Anyway, I think there there are three really interesting um, uh, examples to look at when we're looking at uh, sort of what the TTB does and the challenges that they face. I'm going to bring up uh, example number one, which would be St. George and the introduction of absinthe into the United States. Uh, St. George was helpful in uh, making absinthe legal again into the U.S. Uh, There's this sort of um, uh, miseducation amongst people who don't really know absinthe and assume that the absinthe that is served in the United States is not real, quote unquote, uh, and that couldn't be further uh, from the true. Uh, furthest from the truth. There is a a restriction on uh, the Thujone levels that are allowed to be in absinthe, and that is a common uh, regulation that is placed on absinthe across the world. That is not what stopped uh, St. George from uh, hitting the market initially. It was because on their uh, label for their absinthe, they had a monkey uh drumming a drum with uh with bones and uh oh sorry he was drumming He was drumming a skull with bones and uh the ttb didn't like that so they said they said no no you can't you can't do that we don't like the way that this uh makes absinthe look in the general uh marketplace so you need to take that off now they actually just have a monkey drumming a drum on their on their label And it's been there for I want to say like uh, over ten years. Uh, Second thing that we can look at is eighty six and Co. Uh, When they entered the market uh, for bartenders, you'd be very uh, familiar with their bottles. Uh, Their bottles are are made for bartenders uh, to use. They grip well. They're meant to be reused. They've got measuring on the side. One of the things that they really tried to do was on their gin label um, put their actual recipe of their gin on their, on their label. So, you know, specific amounts of coriander, specific man, uh, amounts of orris root, specific amounts of citrus, right. And TTP came back to them and said, no, you can't do that. You know, because what this will do is get people to want to make their own gin. <laughs> because obviously they could try to re- recreate this and distilling is totally legal, So that's, you know, that's fine. Right. Like there, there's a, a certain like lapse of judgment about this. And especially when we're trying to move into a world of like greater transparency from, uh, from the brands for a consumer perspective, uh, theoretically something that the TTB that is there to protect, uh, that they were actively in the way of this as a sort of counterpoint now to bring up when we're talking about like Texas Sotol, right. Um, one of our past guests, uh, recently, uh, Gian Nelson shared this really fascinating article with Drew and I about the, uh, mescalero Apache who are in Texas and, and their whole culture and coming, uh, coming of age rights where they, they do agave roasts, uh, in, uh, in the Guadalupe National Park in Texas, it's really fascinating, uh, and it kind of brings in to scope a whole other point of this conversation when we're talking about agave spirits being specifically Mexican. It still is factual, right? But the understanding history, we also understand that the the border crossed them; they didn't cross the border, right? That that old line. <laughs> Uh, and, and that's that makes this a lot more in this conversation a lot more interesting. And certainly someone at the TTB at least has a base understanding of American history to understand at least that aspect of it. I'm curious. at you know, maybe they just don't give a fuck. Maybe maybe they're just like, yeah, Texas. So tall. it's not so tall. It's Texas. To, so tall. Right. Like, you know, maybe right. in their mind, that's enough of a justification that they get to do that um but i think there's a these historical precedences as well as sort of like these ridiculous uh nitpicky things about like booze labels are a really a, a really great example to showcase exactly the the frustration and confusion that that comes from dealing with the tcb on on a regular basis as uh booze professionals as we are
2: yeah i mean it's i i think that just the Texas So total thing we could dedicate an entire podcast to that could be just as confusing or not with that. But I think ultimately like most government entities, it's just a really, it's just a really great way of showing government overreach and kind of being like, we're going to meddle in something that we don't fully understand. So, and I, and I think that's why when I saw this article, in Reddit a few times, I was like, man, I'm really, I'm really not understanding what point they're trying to get across. But what I do understand and what I think is a thing that, you know, resonated more when I talk about it was just the title where it says, Is there a develop is there a disconnect between policy development and business reality? And there are a hundred percent is. Yeah, and I think and I, I think, think anybody who spends any amount of time in this industry goes,
1: Yeah next
2: yeah yeah but i you know again these are these are hard tax dollars at work but i think i think we've confused our listeners enough and if they're even still listening at this point i think it's time to move on to my favorite part of the show you know who's dope them over there so again, as I mentioned, this is my favorite part of the show. This is our Dope Follows. This is where we tell you who you should be checking out. It could be different Instagram accounts, books, movies, other podcasts, hopefully while still listening to ours, or just whatever our guest and Chris and I think that you should be checking out. So, Bryant, we're going to start with you. Who is your Dope Follow?
0: Dope Follows. All right. Well, I'll try to keep it simple. There are actually three, two of them kind of touch on similar subjects, and one is just kind of a more of a leisure podcast. But uh, okay. keeping it close close to home for you guys, there's actually a writer from the Sacramento Bee. Her name is Melissa Myrna. I don't know if you guys are familiar with her. Uh, I really enjoy following her Instagram. I think she's more um, active on her Twitter. She passed me her Twitter at Melissa Myrna, M-E-L-I-S-S-A-M-Y-R-N-A. Um, yeah, she Post books on, you know, on the regular talking about kind of environmentalism and the cultural defense of Mexico also gets kind of into, um, you know, uh, Mexican culture commentary, um, food sovereignty and issues of poverty and inequality in the Central Valley. I find it to be you know pretty fascinating. Uh, another shout out to um, my homie. Neftali Duran. So he's more active on Instagram at Neftali Duran N-E-F-T-A-L-I-D-U-R-A-N underscore. Ex cook um from Oaxaca, uh immigrated here during the teens, in his teens, but um definitely much about uh environmentalism, talks a lot about the indigenous perspective of mezcal production and how it can be detrimental in certain communities. Um, I feel like it's definitely important to give the indigenous people of Mexico a voice in the world realm of Mexico. We have too many celebrities out there. We have too many bartenders who think they know this shit. It's time to listen to the people of the land and really know and let, you know, the public know what's really going on in the realm. Um, Last one, like I said, not as serious now. This one's definitely, well, much more (laughs) relaxed. Try not to be as politically charged over here. But if you guys are familiar with, uh, like, Mexican traditional music, uh, corridos, and whatnot. There's a famous artist named Chalino Sanchez. He was murdered in 92, 94. But it's a podcast. It's really interesting called "Um Idolo Ballad of Chalino Sanchez. And Chalino Sanchez, a very prominent Mexican singer, but there are a lot of theories surrounding his death. And he's, uh, this podcast, I think it's like eight episodes, and they're bilingual. So you can listen to it in Spanish or in English. Kind of delves into the different theories about his um. Um, His murder, his music and what inspired his music um, also has a lot to do with the history of how the corridos or the narco corridos, kind of like the um, corridos are based off of, uh, you know, have like narco themes came to be and how they were actually centered around L.A. And how L.A. kind of helped this bring, you know, bring this music up in Mexico and across the states. So that's a really fun and interesting podcast, very informative and just something to tune out to.
2: Those, those are solid. So I do follow, uh, to the Natalie, um, account and I just yeah. gotta, I gotta, I gotta tell you guys, um, he's definitely one of those people that makes me uncomfortable at times. And then also, you know, pisses me <laughs> off because I think there's a lot of stuff that he's on. He's totally on, you know, on target with. And I think there's other things you're kind of like, you're like, oh, those are those hard to swallow pills that I've been hearing about when it comes to uh, cultures and stuff like that. But I also think that there are, you know, there was like one time where he was talking about a scene in Don't Look Up and it was talking about the writing style and how this, this character was making all of these racial comments and things like that. And it's like, oh, this is how ass backwards Hollywood writing still is. And I just wanted to be like, I'm like, dude, you are right. A lot of the time but I was like this is a parody like this is supposed to be the worst of the worst like if you were talking about some other type of movie that was more serious in tone like I think I might reason with you but I was was like this guy was supposed to sound like an asshole like that was the intention of this so that was like the only one time but it's it's definitely um, an account that you know makes you uncomfortable at times but I think it should like that's the point Like you need to be uncomfortable. And these are conversations that that need to happen. But I like those. I'm I'm looking forward to check it out. Um, You kind of stole my thunder tonight, to be honest with you, because I was going to give three follows, which might have been the first time we did three follows ever. And you just (laughs) swooped in and you're kind of like, I'm going to do this. And I'm like, well, there goes my whole intro and spiel. So um, I'm going to keep it up and I'm going to give my three now. Uh, You know, on my trip to Miami this past week, I went to um, one of one of my my last trip, one of my favorite bars, which was Jaguar Sun. Uh, Jaguar Sun is a really cool uh, rum bar. And over the past two years, obviously going through everything that bars went to, they ended up moving locations and opening up kind of like this pop-up steakhouse, but still really cool bar in this courtyard. And it's absolutely incredible and an amazing experience. And um, Will, who's the owner of the place, uh, really treated me and my group to just the most incredible night. He is a huge supporter of the Toronto. And it's like one of those nights that you have and just all the food that comes out, all the drinks that come out that you're kind of like, I can never leave this industry because I will never have this experience if I'm not in this industry. Cause I will never make millions of dollars. Right. And, um and he just really took it to the next level. The other really fun thing was walking into uh Jaguar Sun. I walk up to the bar and the bartender goes, "Hey, I know you." And I was like, "Oh my god, I know you too." And it was, um, <laughs> and it was uh, my buddy Marco, who the last time that we had met at Rum Fest, or at Rum Congress. Him and his wife were running a bar in New Orleans, and I had always kept their cards. And I was like, "Eventually, when I go to New Orleans, I'm gonna hit up, um, I'm gonna hit up Marco and and Anaïs, and I'm gonna visit their bar and we're gonna go out and have a good time." And so, um, unfortunately, again. COVID and stuff like that kind of force them to come back to come back to Miami and uh, and set up shop there, but they are just amazing. Um, they're so good at what they do. I really hope that there's a day where they get to um, open up their own spot again. But so the three follows are following Jaguar sun, which is going to be uh Jaguar sun S U N M I A. And then Marco's is in underscore rum underscore. We underscore trust he does amazing cocktails, all of different stuff, and then um, and then Anaís is uh, Miss underscore D-S-D-I-A-Z. D I A uh, Z. There are just there, everybody there is just wonderful. And you know, if you find yourself in Miami, um, check out Jaguar Sun. It's just it's such a cool spot, especially with like the pop up they're doing right now. It's just amazing. So, so those are my what I thought was going to be unique three follows. Uh, Chris, who's your dope follow this week? Uh, I uh, I've got twelve today. God
0: damn it! Damn it!
1: (laughs) No, no, no. I've I've only got one, Uh, uh, and mine is a uh, uh, little cocktail porn. uh, uh, You know, Instagram page. Just just this guy, Adrian, makes really great cocktails. Takes great photos of them. They're fun to look at. Uh, They're well orchestrated. Um, and, uh, his page or his account is poor underscore attempts, P O U R poor attempts. haha ha, Get it. Um, and, uh, yeah, he just, he, he makes really pretty cocktails and it's fun to look at. Um, he does a really great job. It gives you something to be inspired by. I personally really enjoy looking at, uh, cocktail aesthetics, Um, not that I'm someone who takes a lot of photos of cocktails, but I enjoy, uh, looking at them through a certain lens that way when I'm designing, uh, cocktails and when I'm designing menus, I can have a certain, um, uh, perspective in mind, uh, because I generally believe that people eat first with their eyes. Uh, so. I, I like having accounts like this that I can look at and be like, cool, that looks good. Oh, I like the way that they garnish that. Oh, you know what? This looks just a little off with that ice or with, you know, this foam or something like that. Uh, it's, it's always great just to have reference points like that for me. So I enjoy following accounts like this. So uh, poor attempts, poor underscore attempts on Instagram.
2: I love it. I love it. Those are, um, those are a lot, but those are some pretty dumb <laughs> follows.
1: good bottle podcast is orchestrated by leon and chase moore and produced pretty darn well by these two guys before we go kill these bottles and uh that we are drinking we ask that if you've enjoyed this episode please subscribe and leave us a five-star review
2: i've gone through multiple bottles like i kept just like finding different 50 ml's (laughs) around my desk and then eventually i went to some bottles so uh i'm gonna be you know maybe a little bit rougher shape tomorrow uh you can follow us on instagram or facebook at the good bottle podcast or on our personal accounts mine is d 6 six is Kristen flair um brian where can they find you on social medias
0: uh, you can find me on Facebook as Brian J. Orozco or on Instagram as Cruising for a Boozin. That's C-R-U-I-S-I-N underscore or underscore A underscore Boozin without the G.
2: Nice. Um, you can support the podcast by visiting our Etsy shop. Get yourself a cool fanny pack or maybe a you know 100% celebrity agave free shirt. Um, or you can check out anchor.fm slash Podcast. You know, throw some shekel at us. We'll, we're gonna hire uh, Bryant to consult for for the good bottle shop. You know, get some finally get some good agave in there.
0: Oh yeah, let me know when when you guys are ready.
2: <laughs> Such a good word on Chris. Such a good <laughs> that word was,
0: that hurt. That hurt a lot. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: if you would like for us to cover a story or uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or working on <laughs> a brand that wants to be featured, please email us at goodbottlepodcast at gmail
2: And as a reminder, you can purchase the bottles that we drank on this episode at thegoodbottleshop.com. And until next time,
0: cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Salud a la banda. I'm so excited to reveal the Bacanora to Chris of what Bryant buried the other day.